Who saw me just bang my head on the TV? <laughs> you heard it. For those of you who heard but didn't see, I just banged my head on the TV. I didn't have a bulletin, so I had to run back to grab a bulletin and on the way back up. I think my hair is still stuck in the plastic right there. <clears throat> so there you go. And I dislocated my shoulder this week on Monday, so, you know, Mike said, I've got two injuries I can preach from, but, you know. So we are, we're going to dive into Romans, um, and before we do, um, I want to talk about how frustrating we can be to other people and to the people outside. Um, as a church and as Christians, we spend a lot of time arguing about things. Right? We spend a lot of time arguing um, within the church over theology. Some stuff is really important and matters. I'm a huge theology guy, but I'll be the first person to admit that a lot of the arguments about theology and what the Bible teaches and the disagreements between churches is absolutely worthless and doesn't help people follow Jesus. Okay, now I'm a theology guy. I have a seminary degree. I love theology, and I'll be the first person to admit that. We argue also over politics and, over, and Christians argue over, even over global warming and policy issues um, and like our response to the national and the international issues of the day. It's important to have discussions about these topics. It's absolutely vital for us to come together and talk about these things because these things can lead us into a deeper understanding of the Bible. They can lead us into a better understanding of who God is, what God is like, and what the Bible says. The problem is that, that a lot of times the arguments that we engage in generate more heat than light. Oftentimes our attitudes, we're not having healthy discussions. We argue, we get defensive, we draw lines, we choose sides against people that we don't agree with and, or frankly, they don't agree with us. Um, and if we're guilty of arguing in the church in really bad and unhealthy ways, how much worse are we to the world around us? Um, we're guilty of posturing. Um, we fight over politics and laws and rights in the world. And this kind of stuff moves us away from the most important message that we have for the world. This moves us off of center for what we're supposed to be about as a church. And again, I'm not saying that we shouldn't study and have discussions and talk about and come to conclusions about issues of policy. But when we spend time arguing unhealthily, when we spend time getting defensive and getting angry with people and drawing lines and picking sides and saying there's only one biblical view on X, whatever X is, we end up moving away from the message that Jesus has given to the church. Okay, The greatest thing that we have as a church to offer to others, um, some would say the only thing that we have as a church to offer to others is news. Okay, It's news that the God who made the world sent his son into the world to heal and renew the world through his death and resurrection. That's the core, that's the start, that's the middle, that's the end of what we have to offer. If what we are discussing, if what we are arguing about isn't coming from the death and resurrection of Jesus and God's plan to fix and heal the brokenness of the world through making his son Lord of all, then we have left the mission and the message that God has given to the church. 
so often the arguments that I get into, it's so easy for us to like, to just, we, we don't mean to do it sometimes, right? Sometimes, and frankly, they think that Jesus is on my side and I'm not sure I was even right. Like I was arguing the best of what I know, but I'm not, I think I might've slapped a Christian label on that conversation and left this person with a wrong view of Jesus. And so for us, we have to, we have to realize this, um, what God has been doing since the resurrection of Jesus is renewing the world by renewing people. He's changing people's hearts. He's helping them to know who God is, what God is like, and he's bringing them into a family. He adopts every person who follows Jesus into his family, and that family is supposed to be characterized by honesty and love. That family is supposed to be characterized by sacrifice, by acceptance and growth, by people encouraging each other. But so often the church doesn't act like this. So often we don't act like a loving family. We act like an angry group of militant protesters. Or sometimes we act like a passive-aggressive, arrogant people who think they're better than everyone else. Our posture toward each other in the church and toward outsiders is not what Jesus designed when we look at the way that we often respond to conflict. And this isn't just about political issues or policy issues or you know, the applications of the gospel in the world today. This also comes about when we get into conflict with each other. So in marriages with children, with friendships, in your life groups, when somebody upsets you and you don't respond the right way, you're just as guilty. Um, you're just as guilty. This idea, um, and, and I want to talk a little bit about this, but in subtle and overt ways, we end up acting like we're better than other people. And this thinking, it shapes our hearts and it ruins relationships and it disconnects us from Jesus and his mission. And so this, the Bible speaks directly to this attitude. The Bible wants us to, it, it sort of describes this attitude um, in the church that Paul was writing to in the, in, in the city of Rome. You had Jews and you had Gentiles and they were both constantly trying to one-up each other. They were both trying to figure out how they could show the other that they're better kind of like Republicans and Democrats. They're always trying to one-up each other. Every time one does something wrong, the other one says, oh, look what they did wrong. And every time they do something right, they say, oh, wait, wait, oh, I'm only going to look at what we do right. That was going on in the church, and Paul's writing to the church. The Bible directly speaks to this attitude, and the passage that we're going to look at today exposes this mentality and this attitude, and it does it in a way that can transform us if we're willing to understand it and apply its truth to our lives. So we're going to look at Romans 3, verses 9 to 18. It's in your bulletin. There's a place to take notes there. Um, we're also going to see it up on the screens here. But friends, this is God's inspired word. And so listen to it. Paul says, what then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they've become worthless. No one does good, not even one. 
Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. And in their paths are ruin and misery and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. So this is not good news. <laughs> this is not happy news. Um, this is disturbing. This is arresting. Um, but this is necessary for us to embrace if we want to cultivate the kind of relationships that we need in order for us to be the family of Jesus on earth. Okay, and so I want to start off by looking first uh, not at the details of, of what the description is of, of people, but um, I just want you to notice that the way that Paul answers the question he asks in verse 9 is almost the opposite of the question that he answered in verse 1 and 2. Let me show you what I mean. Verse 9, let's just look at verse 9 again. It says, what then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For those of you who were here a couple weeks ago or, so, or were here when we preached on Romans 3, 1, to 1 and 2, you'll see that this is the exact opposite answer that Paul gives from that verse. Okay, let me show it to you. Romans 3, 1 and 2. He says, Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. Confused? Almost the same question, but completely different answers. Right? In verse 1, are the Jews any better off? Well, yeah, in every way they are. Um, but here in verse 9, are they any better off? No, not at all. I love this. Um, I love this. This is what causes you to need to pay a pastor to spend his week studying this stuff. So this is the kind of stuff that gives me a job. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. No. <laughs> I love this because this shows that the Bible will say different things for different reasons in different situations, answering different questions, okay? Our children, as they grow up, need very clear black and white answers. Everything is either good or bad, right or wrong, true or false. As our kids grow up, that's what they need. When people first become Christians, Oftentimes, they need a spirit, they're spiritually infant, and they need true, false, good, bad, right, wrong, okay? But the Bible is so much more nuanced. This is not the Bible contradicting itself. Paul's not an idiot. If he's going to contradict himself, he'd say one thing in this letter and then say something else in another letter, right? If you're going to contradict yourself, you don't do that within the space of seven verses, right? Nobody does that. That doesn't make any sense, um, these are two different perspectives based on the situation. Let me give you an example so that you will know exactly what Paul is doing here. Think about someone that you know who's a parent, okay? Maybe you're a parent. Have you ever been asked, so how are your kids? Depending on the day, depending on the time of the day, you might hear one of two answers, you might hear somebody say, oh my goodness, I have the greatest kids in the world. <laughs> and on other days and other times, you might hear, I have the worst kids on the planet. Is this a parent contradicting themselves? No. 
No, it's not. They're giving different answers based on different situations. Okay, that's what Paul is doing here in this passage. In verses 1 and 2, Paul is saying that the Jews actually had a tremendous advantage because they had the word of God for thousands of years and nobody else did. God spoke to Abraham and to his family. He spoke again to Moses and he gave Israel his word. He gave Israel the Torah, his instruction, so that they could know who God is, how God thinks, how God feels, what life looks like to walk with God. And nobody else had that back then. That's what Paul's saying in verse 1. But then here in verse 9, Paul's saying that even though the Jews were God's chosen people, Because they failed to keep God's word, they are no better than anyone else. Okay, they had all these privileges, but they squandered those privileges. They had all these blessings, but those blessings ended up meaning nothing, nothing for them because they didn't keep the word of God. They didn't stay in covenant with God. They corrupted their relationship with God to the point where they were no better than anyone else on earth. And so the conclusion that Paul gives is he says, no, not at all, for we have already charged, this is verse 9, we've already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. They're under sin. And Paul here is making a universal statement that we are all under sin. We are both, we are guilty because we haven't done the things that God has asked us to do. We've done all kinds of things that God has told us not to do. That's sin. That's missing the mark, missing the standard of what God's design is for human life and flourishing. And so um, so we're guilty of our sin, but we're also under the power of sin. Okay, Sin is not just a guilty record that you have, but sin is a force in the world. Sin is described in this letter as it's personified. And the Bible says, and this passage says, that we are under the power of sin. We are influenced by the power of sin. And then verses 10 through 18 are this series of quotations from the Old Testament. Paul quotes the Old Testament during the times, he's quoting from times when God's people were as bad or worse than the people who weren't following him. And so it's appropriate because Paul's saying the same thing to the church that he's writing to. He's saying the Jews at this time are acting just like God's people were acting in the Old Testament when all of these quotes um, came. And so this passage sounds harsh, okay? If you are not familiar with the Bible's teaching and you don't have a place or really categories to understand why the Bible talks about sin and brokenness, Um, this is going to come across pretty harsh and arresting. Um, And we're going to talk through that. We're going to talk about it. So so hold on. But I want you to see as we look at these verses, verses 10 to 18, that this whole passage, that Romans 3 verses 9 through 18, it's like part of a construction project. Okay? It's really important that you understand when the Bible speaks this harshly about human beings and the brokenness of our hearts and our minds and the things that we do, that this is like part of a construction project. Okay, what do I mean by that? Well, <clears throat> in our house, we are finishing up, desperately trying to finish up a construction project. Um, it began simply as a project designed to get new kitchen cabinets. Okay? That's what we, we started out trying to do. We wanted new kitchen cabinets. 
this is kind of hilarious because Lainey would tell you that if you Google ugly kitchen cabinets, no joke, literally the image that shows up is a picture of our old cabinets. I'm not kidding. You can Google it, and then, <clears throat> but you can't see them in our house because they're gone. But, um, but this is how the project started. We just wanted new cabinets, but as with every construction project, there's always chaos, right? And though every construction project is different, no two projects are alike. There are two things that every construction project has in common, right? What are they? It takes longer than you plan, and it's way more expensive than you plan, right? Those are the two things that every uh, every construction project has in common. So, because you plan, you estimate, you have deadlines, but it always takes longer. It always costs more. Stuff always goes wrong. So you miss your deadlines and you find out, usually the reason why deadlines get pushed and costs go up is because you find out that there's a lot more that needs to be fixed than you originally thought, right? That's what happened to us. Because as we got into this project to replace our cabinets, we learned that there was about 30 feet of exposed pipe in our laundry room that needed to be removed and actually put under the house. Then we found out that under the house, there was about 45 feet of piping that needed to be removed because it was causing problems and it wasn't functioning in any practical way. We learned about a gas leak that we had under the house for over five years. Yeah, we kind of smelled it, but it wasn't always. And it was like, eh. And I was like afraid to call the gas company and ask them to look because if they smelled it, aren't they going to shut off our gas? And then what do we do? And I don't know if we can afford to fix whatever's under it. I don't know. But then I don't always smell it. So, so we just sat on it for five years. And, you know, um, we didn't light matches near there. Come on. We're not that dumb. No, we found out that there's this little tiny pinprick of a gas leak underneath the house, and it actually wasn't, it wasn't as dangerous as y'all think I am now, but, but that's, part of, that's part of the challenge of having me as a husband. So, um, so we, we found this gas leak that we did fix, by the way. Okay, so it's fixed now. Um, we learned about load-bearing posts and walls that had zero support under the house. So we got under there, and there was literally nothing. It was like just the wood, like our flooring, and then two and a half feet to the ground. And so these are load-bearing posts. You know, there's engineering diagrams that show where the load-bearing posts are, but under where, there's nothing. So then we had to reroute plumbing. We had to reroute the electrical to make these new cabinets work that we were getting, right? Um, the, the, the counters that we had needed to be replaced. So we had to remove and replace walls, right? So all of this stuff and every problem that we had meant more work, more effort, more time, and of course, more money, more money. And so, and all of this needed to be fixed in order for us to have the new kitchen that we chose, right? If this doesn't get fixed, we can't put in the cabinets. And I think it's funny because when the cabinets were delivered, they were ready to install, but we weren't ready for them. We had to do this other stuff in order to get ready to put the cabinets in. I think sometimes... The gospel is like that. Sometimes the gospel promises of Jesus don't feel like they quite fit yet. Like there's stuff he gives us and we're like, I don't know where to put this. Or, you know what, there's something in my life actually that doesn't fit with this. And I don't know how to work this into my life. Um, This is because with our hearts, 
listen here, with our hearts, there is a deeper work of construction that needs to go on. You think that you just have guilt of your sin and that God will forgive you and everything will be great. Now hear me, God will forgive your sin. When you confess your sins, he does forgive you. But sometimes there's stuff inside of us. Sometimes there's other work that needs to happen. You wonder why, hey, I've asked for forgiveness, God's forgiven me, why do I still struggle? Right? Why am I still dealing with this? Why is this relationship still causing me problems? Why is it that in this situation I can never ever seem to do the right thing? It's because there's deeper construction that needs to go on. There's plumbing that needs to be fixed, right? There's electrical stuff that needs to be fixed, right? You can kind of chase down how the analogy applies. Um, And so this passage is written so that we would know, that we would understand the depth of the construction that needs to happen in our own lives, in our hearts. Um, This passage isn't designed to be to describe like how bad human beings can be, it's actually designed to help us understand just how much we need the saving love of God expressed in Jesus Christ. Um, There are people who know they're forgiven, but they don't have a real sense of how broken they are. And so they treat God's forgiveness kind of lightly. And they don't always mean to do it but they just have this sort of arrogance about them or this sort of out-of-touchness. They kind of wonder why other people are so broken. (laughs) You know, they wonder why other people seem to struggle so much. And sometimes it's because they're blind to what's going on inside of them. And so this passage isn't designed to scare us away, but it's designed to show us that when God says that he loves us, He loves all of us. Okay, you need to know this. You need a passage like this that can accurately describe the depth of the brokenness in your heart so that when you hear that God loves the world, you know he's also talking about you with your brokenness. This is so important for us. Verses 10 to 18 go on. And they're describing the problem that sin has in our lives. And it says, verse 10, it says, None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they become worthless. No one does good, not even one. And so what we see here is that the problem of sin Um, Not just the guilt of our sin, but the power of our sin is complicated. It's far-reaching, and it touches every aspect of our lives. Okay, If you find that in every relationship that you have, somehow sin rears its ugly head, you're not alone. In fact, your experience is so universal that the Bible describes it here so that you would know that you're not alone. God is making room for you so that you can see. Um, and, you know, the, um, I mean, there's, there's language here that is so powerful. 
um, first of all, this is talking to Christians. It's important to see that. This is Paul writing to the church. This is probably not necessarily the best way to approach people who aren't Christian. Okay? There was a day and a time in my own life when no matter who it was or if I was talking to somebody who wasn't a Christian, I'd bring them right to this verse to try to convince them just how awful that they are. You're broken. You're, you're sinful. Every part of you is sinful. You're not good. You don't even seek for God. You don't do anything good. You're worthless. For some reason, it didn't go very well. Because um, to me, I was excited about that because I had the sense that, wait, 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 and God still loves me and there's this good news that comes as a follow of that, but I got to convince him and make him agree with the bad news before I can give him the good news. It's not a right that says, don't do that. Don't do that. Don't do that. That's not even what Paul does here. This is chapter 3. Paul's already described the good news at the very beginning in chapter 1, from verses 1 to 17. He's talked about good news of the gospel. In chapter 2, verses 6 to 13, he's talked about the goodness of the gospel. At the end of chapter 2, he's talked about this transformation of the heart that happens by the power of the Spirit. And so there's all this good news that comes. And so Paul doesn't just give the bad news. Okay, he doesn't just give the bad news. What's interesting too is that um, going back to the construction piece, because this is very, very relevant, especially when we think about sharing the gospel with people who aren't Christian, is that, um, so it was kind of a drag every time something new came up that we had to fix, right? It was frustrating. However, however, the work that was being done on my house was being done by a friend of mine. And the rate that I was paying my friend was astronomically low. And so, every time something bad came up, I thought, this is such an incredible blessing because I'm going to get it fixed for this much an hour rather than it being this much an hour if I had to hire a contractor or bring in a professional. I mean, this guy was a professional too, but like, um, but so... It was in the context of this relationship with the guy who was there to fix the problem, who was fixing it in a way that was a blessing to me that let me be open and honest about how bad my situation was. Make sense? And so we've got to make sure when we deliver bad news like this that it's coming in the context of the good news of Jesus and the gospel. Okay, you can't talk about this without talking about the good news. You can't talk about this without saying Jesus has come to disrupt these kinds of lives, to bring blessing into these kinds of lives, to turn the direction of these kinds of lives around so that there could be life of meaning and purpose and satisfaction and peace. And so in this passage, and there's lots of ways to look at all these different lines, um, there's really two ways that the problem is described. It's described in terms of what we say and what we do. Okay, if you look there um, in verse 13, it says, their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Those are all things, this, this is what we say. And the corruption of our hearts is reflected in the things that we say to other people. Right? Sometimes we're saying it just to ourselves. Sometimes we're saying it to other people. Um, but what we say can be a very, well, Jesus said that out of the mouth comes what's in the heart. 
And so oftentimes the corruption of our heart is indicated by the things that we say, that we deceive other people. We tell lies, and sometimes it's shading the truth. Sometimes it's hiding to make ourselves look better. Um, Curses and bitterness. Um, If deceiving is designed to maybe protect us, curses and bitterness is designed to attack and hurt other people. Right? So you think about the things that you say that cut other people down, the things that you say that hurt other people. Um, this is an expression of our brokenness and our fallenness. And then verses 15 to 18 talk really about what we do, um, that are, their feet are swift to shed blood. This is a, a pattern of life, the way of peace they have not known. So again, the way, this is the way of your life. Um, and so it's what we say and what we do that that demonstrate the brokenness uh, that is in us. And then I want to I show you, because as you see in the bulletin, um, the way that verses 10 to 18 are broken down, they've got these sort of passage descriptions, uh, these references um, after each quote. And um, so what I did was, scholars show this, that what Paul is doing in this part of this, uh, in this, part of this passage is he's quoting the Old Testament, Okay. And so you can see the quotes there. They're up here on the screen. Um, And it's important to see two things here. Um, The first thing is that there's seven quotations. So anytime you see seven, this is an opportunity to sort of get a window into the author's intention. Seven in the Bible is the number of completeness. And so Paul chose seven quotes from the Old Testament to say, like, this is sort of the complete totality or the sum total of human fallenness. Okay? It doesn't necessarily mean that everything describes every person, but this is sort of the descriptor of all of the human race living apart from God. So that's kind of cool. Anytime you see seven, you're like, oh, hey, he did seven things. That's kind of cool. Like he's trying to talk about the completeness of what he's describing. Um, it's cool. I don't know how practical it is, but I kind of like it to help you study the Bible. And, uh, but the second thing is more important is to know the context of these quotes. Okay, because oftentimes when the New Testament quotes the Old Testament, it's not just trying to go, all right, where can I pull from the Old Testament something that sounds just like the point I'm trying to make? It's not like a bumper sticker. Okay, usually when the New Testament quotes the Old Testament, the New Testament is trying to not just take the phrase that it's quoting, but it's trying to call to mind the context when that original quote was given. And so sometimes you'll see a quote and it's the first line of a psalm. And the design of that quote is actually to tell you to read the whole psalm. Okay, so usually when you go back and check where is this verse coming from, you want to make sure you read the whole chapter at least of where it's coming from because oftentimes something significant happens when you see the context. Okay, so... In these passages, in these seven passages, there's something common. In the midst of these indicting statements, when they're first given in the Old Testament, God is not just indicting his people, but he is about to act. That soon after this indictment is laid on God's people, God is making a promise that he is about to do something to fix what's wrong. That's a big deal. It's not a coincidence that the context of just about every one of these quotes is that God is about to come and make things right. 
He's going to come judge the world. He's going to rescue those who call on him for help. And he's going to establish a new family on earth. And so Paul quotes these seven places because that's exactly what Jesus has just come to do. So Paul quotes these passages and applies them today because God's indictment is still on people who think they're better than others. And Paul is saying that Jesus has come to bring the fulfillment of God's promise to fix what's broken. And so this is what God has done through Jesus. And Paul is about to say in the very next section, he's about to describe finally in great detail, we're going to see this in our next series coming up in a few weeks, um, but in great detail what Jesus actually did and how God has brought judgment and how he's brought rescue to the world. What's amazing is that when Jesus shows up, Right? We don't see this until the next section. But when Jesus shows up, judgment does come, but that judgment falls on Jesus on the cross. God says, you deserve judgment, but I'm going to take your judgment so that you can be forgiven. I'm going to put in you a power. I'm going to put in you my presence. I'm going to unite you to Jesus in a way so that you won't be under sin anymore. I'm going to break the power of sin in your life so that you can walk free, so that you can be new people, so that you can be a family now that's characterized by love and sacrifice, generosity and understanding. This is exactly what God has done through Jesus. I don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves, but I got to tell you, right, this is the good news that makes the bad news something that you can say, all right, maybe I'll think about how this might apply to my own heart. Um, so we tend to think, unless this has been drilled into you by being in a church, we tend to think on the whole that we're good people. Um, most people would not describe themselves in this way. Um, this idea, no one does good, not even one. People would be like, wait, hold on a second. Come on, I'm not that bad, right? This, is, this, this tends to be the way that... Um, the way that we describe ourselves. Now, most of us would be honest. We say we're not perfect, um, but different people have different definitions of good and bad people. The only problem, though, with thinking, that, with the idea that, oh, we're all good people or that we're all inherently good is that it's, it, in, it actually increases. If you think you're a good person, here's part of the, the, the negative power of this. It will increase your intolerance of other people who aren't acting like good people. Okay? If you think you're a good person, it will increase your intolerance for other people who aren't acting like good people. It's easy to think, if you're good, that others aren't. And the implicit and subtle, sometimes not so subtle temptation, sometimes the tendency is to believe that you are better than other people. And again, I don't know that people set out for this, but this is what happens. This is what happens to us. And this can look like you rolling your eyes at someone else. Um, and whether you actually physically do that, like I see that happen um, pretty regularly in my circles, 
Don't want to expose the sins of others. So stop trying to think of who I might see that does that. Um, but uh, yeah, sometimes it's physically rolling your eyes like, oh, jeez. Like, really? Oh, you think that? But sometimes it's not physically rolling your eyes, but in your heart, you're like, oh, brother. Like, this is ridiculous. I can't believe that you are so unenlightened, so uninformed that you would think this way. Um, when you get impatient with other people, implicitly you are acting like you're better than them. On the other hand, if you can believe what this passage of the Bible is teaching, if you can come to grips and, and realize not just that none of us are perfect, not just that we all fall short, but that we're all sold under the power of sin, if you're convinced of that, if you are acquainted with the ways in which you fall short of God's standards, with the specific sins that you struggle with, and the specific ways that you are not what God wants you to be, then you'll be much quicker to be understanding of others. You'll be much quicker to be tolerant, to be patient, to be understanding and forgiving. Um, that's actually the road. Like this passage, embracing this passage and saying, I'm not righteous. I don't understand. I don't seek for God. I have turned aside. I have become worthless. I don't do good. When you can embrace that because you know the ways that you sin, the ways that you fail God, the ways that you fail to live up to God's standard, to bring human flourishing into your life and through your life into others, if you can come to grips with the ways that you are fallen, you'll be able to love other people as you love yourself. Right? Jesus said, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. And I want to remind you, I feel like I've said this several times before, but how do you feel about your own sin? How do you think about your own sin? When your own sin gets brought up, you immediately rush to defend yourself. Right? Even if you admit your sin, right? even if you know that this is something God doesn't like, you're like, yeah, but, you know, come on, we're all broken. Do you say that to other people? Is that your initial reaction to other people's sin? Spouse? Children? Roommate? Coworker? Is your initial reaction to say, gosh, you know what? This person must be going through something really hard right now. And that must be part of why they're acting toward me this way. When was the last time you did that? But you do that for yourself all the time. I've had a hard day. Like, you have no idea I got yelled at by my boss. Like, you have no idea my spouse, my children, my, you know, like, the weather. This is how I'm always when the weather's like this, you know? I'm tired. I didn't get a good night's sleep last night. And I'm not saying that any of that stuff isn't a factor in why you sin. I'm asking you, why don't you put those factors in when you evaluate someone else's sin? Love your neighbor as you love yourself, right? And so when we think we're good people, we don't run that cycle through. We don't think that way. We don't get to that place um, where we love other people the way that we love ourselves. Um, and what happens, I mean, so we're impatient, we're intolerant, we're judgmental, we're, we think we're better than other people. 
The other thing that happens when we think we're good is that we end up hiding our sin from other people. Right? I mean, we hide it. Because if I'm a good person, I need you to think I'm a good person. Right? I've got to like present the evidence that proves my self-evaluation. And so again, sometimes implicitly, sometimes it's overt. I have to not tell you the stuff that's going on in my life that's really hard. I have to not tell you. I've got to hide from you and hide from everybody the stuff that's really broken in me. This is what happens. Um... And it starts by hiding our sin from somebody else. Then we begin to hide it from ourselves. And then it becomes this awful, vicious cycle where we actually think we're better and we're better and we're better because we're hiding more and more and more. And what's actually happening is that our hearts are becoming more and more calcified. Our hearts are becoming stony. Um, Jackie, did you get the valve? Did they find it? Jim Hopkins had aortic valve replacement surgery this week on his heart. He's come through it. He's now at home. Amazing recovery. God has been wonderfully blessing his recovery. But the doctor said that this, this valve is supposed to be like this really fleshy kind of flap. It's supposed to like, you know, it's a valve. It's supposed to like clamp down and like cover it up and then it opens, and you know. And this thing had become like rock hard. Just one little piece of his heart. This is what happens to us, friends, um, when we don't embrace what the Bible says about our condition. And so we desperately need to embrace this passage, but I want to tell you, you can't do it without the gospel. Okay? This is too much for us to embrace if we don't have Jesus and his forgiveness. Right? We need someone to tell us that it's okay for us to admit that this is what we're really like. Okay? We need someone to be able to tell us that if this is us, if this is a description of me, then I don't know that I can still show my face, especially in church. And friends, this is why Jesus came. Jesus came and was treated as though he were guilty of all of your sins so that you could be honest with God, honest with yourself, and honest with the rest of the church family about just where you are spiritually. We desperately need to come clean with some people in our lives, okay? I'm not saying you confess all of your sins to every person in the church, but you've got to have some folks in your life, in your life group. This is what life groups are for, to help you build relationships so that you can become honest. Um, but we need this. Um, we need this. And the good news is that in so many ways, like we're all just the same. And so this passage in the Bible that's in your bulletin, this is describing every person that's in here. You're not alone. Okay? I'm not alone. My sin has been um, rearing up in my life lately. Like it's been really difficult. I'm becoming face to face with more and more of my brokenness. And it's not like, I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not saying, oh, look at me, I'm being humble and I'm confessing my sin. Like I hate myself. There's parts of me that I hate um, because I'm not seeking God. Because my throat is an open grave. 
And I'm not bragging about this. I'm just telling you that your pastor is like this. So if you're like this, do what I'm doing and run to Jesus. Because he loves you enough to tell you this is what you're like so that you can own it and find hope. He'll forgive you. And he's got this way of like working on you. He says, look, this is going to take time. It's going to take you getting real with other people. It's going to take you stepping into the process of letting him be in control of the decisions that you make and the places that you go and the things that you do. Um, And as we give him that control, boy, like his renewing power takes off in our lives. There's hope for me. There's hope for you. If you come to Jesus... Um, If you confess your sins, that's where it starts. Just confess your sins. Confess that these things are true for you um, and ask him to come and to work in your heart. Let's pray together. Jesus, if it wasn't for your forgiveness, we would have to hide all of our stuff, all of our junk, If it wasn't for your forgiveness, we would be literally hell-bent on trying to perfume our lives in ways that would convince people that we're better than we really are. And I just thank you for, for identifying with sinners. Thank you for saying that if we are spiritually bankrupt and have nothing to offer, that we are blessed we're blessed to get to that point where we can admit that to you and admit it to others. Jesus, would you please come and minister to our church family today for people who are Christians and folks who aren't. Jesus, help us to see that you on the cross means you dying for our sin. You know who we really are. You know what we're really like. So help us to open ourselves up to you, to come out of the closet in your presence, to find hope and healing and forgiveness. And Jesus, lead us into community. I know, Jesus, that you are waiting in community for some of us to come clean with someone else. And so lead us into relationships that are safe, understanding, And as you convince each one of us of how broken we are, or to humble us so that we would never treat anybody like we're better. Thank you for the gospel. Thank you for dying for all of our sins. Amen.